Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you guys. My name is Al. I'm one of the elders at Gateway, and I've got the privilege of leading the site here. Can I just say, Dave Lunt, it is great to see you again. Dave has been away for four months. Come on, let's give him... He had a stroke back in November, I think, when he was in Italy. So it's been a very tough time, but it is so great to see you back here with us, worshipping together. Um, so it's a privilege. Um, so yeah, it does look like I'm going out on Friday with the Nepalese. Jason, I love Jason's heart to provoke. He, has, he provoked me this morning, Jason, didn't you? And he said, come on, are you going to come? And I was like, oh, I'm not sure. And then Sarah said, yeah, you should go. And I said, now I am going. I'll be there either 11 o'clock at Town Centre or 10 at Cavendish Square. And do you know what? Honestly, the thought of... It's not something that I'm comfortable doing. I just want to put it out there. It's not something I find easy. I've, talking about my faith one-to-one with people, I feel comfortable in a town centre environment. It's not my immediate sphere of kind of, yo, I feel really comfortable here, but I want to just go and stretch my faith and go and stand with these guys and see what God will do. So if you're thinking it's not my thing, come and join me. We'll, 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 have a, we'll do it together. So we are uh, in a mini-series uh, tracing Jesus' journey to the cross. We call it Cries of Calvary. And we're finishing off next Sunday um, with the baptism service, celebrating new life in Jesus. And we're tracing Jesus' journey through Mark chapter 15. And actually, do you know, it is key that we keep on coming back to the cross. You know, one of the things that's been really wonderful as we preach through this series is just our times of singing and our times of worship have constantly reminding us, the song choice has been constantly reminding us of the power of the cross. Even this morning as Mark and Debbie led us, it was just songs about the cross and about the wonder and the power and the majesty of the cross. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, the best preaching is Christ crucified. Nothing puts life into a man like a dying saviour. And actually, as we go through this preaching series, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're saying, look, we want to remember Jesus Christ crucified, but three days later, raised to new life. And now we get to participate in this new life with Jesus Christ. You know, we're never to grow tired of reflecting and meditating and celebrating the cross of Christ. That, it says in Corinthians, doesn't it, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. What a staggering verse that is. Absolutely staggering. Jesus, sinless, perfect, takes on our sin so that we would stand holy and blameless before God. And so far over this series, we've looked at silence and substitution. And today we're looking at the topic of shame. And the plan's been slightly messed up by the snow, so originally I was going to preach on shame last week, and I was supposed to be on the other side this week preaching on shame. So if you want to hear what Colin is saying in the West today on surrender, go online at some point this week and you'll hear it. Those guys can listen to me on shame if they so desire. So we're going to be tracking through Mark 15, uh, chapter, Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 20. It'll come up on the screen, but um, feel free to look at it. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to look at these verses. What does, it, what does it tell us about how Jesus carries our shame? Then we're going to go right back to the beginning of the, of the Bible, looking at Genesis and the origins of shame and where shame comes from before we jump and say, how does Jesus' death on a cross offer the only solution to shame that there is? And genuinely, I believe this morning, if you allow God to minister to you, he will change you. If you allow God to minister to your heart, God has given me the privilege of sharing this with you this morning, but I can't change you, but the Word of God can. 
Jesus Christ can through his Holy Spirit. So if you just allow your hearts to be open to him this morning, allow him to minister to you in areas of life where you may be struggling, and let Jesus come this morning and help you walk in the freedom that he has won for you, help you walk in this wonderful life that he has prepared for you. Let me just pray for a few moments, and then we'll, um, we'll look through the Bible verse. Lord, I want to just lift up each of us this morning. Lord, I recognize that in this room, probably each of us in some way lives with some, some element of shame. Whether that's minor or whether it's life-controlling, Lord, but I thank you that you came to set us free. It was for freedom that you came, Lord. And I want to just pray this morning for each of us, for myself, for my brothers and sisters in the Lord. I want to pray that as they hear, as we, as we go through this together, I want to pray this morning that shame might be dealt with. We might understand that at the cross, you carried our shame away. You dealt with it. You absorbed it on yourself. I pray also, Lord, that you would help us this morning to understand that and to walk and live in the freedom that you prepared for us and that you've won for us. Just ask, would you minister to our hearts, Lord? I want to pray that if there are those here this morning whose life is dominated by shame, for whatever reason, we'll look at that later, we'll look at why it might be, I want to pray, Lord, would you set them free this morning? Would you help them to understand, Lord, what you did on the cross? Would it become like a revelation moment in life that they'll look back upon this moment and say, ah, I understand that Jesus did this, and it'll be a new day. I want to prophesy a new day for some of you in this room where your life will no longer be marked by feelings of shame or guilt, but they'll be marked by innocence and honor that has been won for you at the cross. I want to pray for those of you who have been wrapped up in shame for many years. There are some who may be here who have lived with shame from decades ago, from things that maybe you did, and it lives with you, or things that were done to you. And it's like your go-to position in life, It's like the thing you default to. I want to prophesy over you this morning. I want to speak a word of freedom. I want to speak the love of God upon you. I want to speak the Spirit's power into you this morning. I pray for a revelation of truth over you this morning. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, no longer yoke yourselves to to slavery. Come, Holy Spirit. I just invite you now just to come and do a powerful work in each of us, Lord, but particularly for those for whom this is a really significant issue in life. Set the captives free, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at Mark, 16, uh, Mark 15, 16 to 20. I'm just going to read it through first, and then I just want to pick up on some very specific things that Mark is recording here. So I'm reading from the NIV. So the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium. If, you've been, if you track the journey through Jesus's, um, when he's on to the road to the cross, there are lots of different times when he's before different people. So originally he's before the council, and they mock him, and they scorn him. And then he's before Pilate and the crowd, and they mock him, and they scorn him. And now he's before the soldiers, and they're doing exactly the same And on the cross, he's before the passers-by, and he's before um, the scribes and the priests. And what we're seeing is a repeated pattern of those who Jesus encounters in this time are mocking him and scorning him and seeking to bring shame upon him. If you track through Mark 15, you see it over and over again. Jesus mocked before different ones. And now he's before the soldiers. 
and called together the whole company of soldiers. The probably, it's probably around 600 soldiers who were before Jesus at this moment. Can you imagine? This room is about 100 people. So about six times this room, all before Jesus, baying for his blood, mocking him, scorning him. 600 people before the Lord, bringing shame upon him in this moment. Can you just imagine the scale of it and the size of it? It's quite astonishing. They put a purple robe on him, then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and they spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. There are some very specific things that the soldiers do in this passage that are designed to humiliate and to bring shame onto Jesus. But before we look into those specifically, we need to remember that the cross is a shameful way to die. It was so shameful that the Romans would barely ever crucify Roman citizens. The cross and shame go hand in hand. The whole, the whole way the cross was done was designed to humiliate and to shame the person who was on the cross. So we need to understand the cross itself is shameful. Jesus was subject to the most humiliating experience that man could ever be loaded with on the cross. But Mark here is picking up on some specific things that the Roman soldiers do that highlight the shame and the cross of the cross and how they were trying to humiliate Jesus publicly. And hopefully there's a picture of, the, of our queen coming up. Here we go. Here she is on her coronation day on 1953. I wasn't born then. I don't know if many of you were. But a few, a handful. Don't put your, you don't need to put your hands up if you were. But you can see her. This is a her on her coronation day. And she's clothed in splendor and majesty. Yeah? You can see the scepter in her right hand, a sign of authority and sovereignty. You can see her crown, which represents who she is. You can see this robe upon her. And she's dressed in finery, and she's being honored in this moment. And if you watch, you go onto YouTube, you watch her coronation day, you see people saying, all hail the queen, and they're saluting her. It's a day of great honor and great glory being brought to this lady as she, she's trusted with leading our land, the British country. But you see, the actions of the Roman soldiers are all associated with royalty. But rather than doing it in a way that's intended to bring glory or honor, they're intended to shame Jesus. And there's six particular things in this passage that we can miss if we're not careful that I, wanna, I want us to go over. Because the actions of the Roman soldiers, they say, hey, Jesus, who's the rightful king, who deserves honor, actually is shamed before the Roman soldiers, and in doing so, is actually absorbing our shame and our wrongdoing. And so there's six things that are spoken about in this passage. Verse 17, they put a purple robe on him. That's the first one. Purple is a royal color. Robes are put onto a king, and they're meant to mark a king's stature, a king's status. But instead of it being used to mark Jesus' status and his stature, what do they do at the end of the passage? They tear it off him as a sign of pretending they're stripping him of his royalty. And they leave him almost naked 
And in Jewish culture, nakedness was associated with shame, as we'll look back a bit later. But Jesus, this first image that's being used, this first thing that the soldiers are doing is they put on a purple robe as if to say, hey, you are the king, but they strip it off him. They strip it away from him, say, as if to say that you think that you're the king. The second one, two, in verse 17, says they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it upon him. As we see the picture of the queen, does not a royal person receive a crown of honor when they're, when they're on their coronation day? Does it not symbolize a sense of glory? And Jesus, rather than receiving a crown of honor, receives a crown of shame and a crown of pain as he takes on these thorns that, were, that would have pierced into his head and would have caused blood loss through his skull. Do you not see the imagery, what's happening here? The Roman soldiers are saying, you think you're a king? We're going to give you a crown of thorns to bring pain and shame. The third one is this. So they began to call out to him, hail, king of the Jews. But you see, this is not some mark of respect that kings deserve when they say, all hail the king or all hail the queen. This is intended to mock him. And it's a sign of scorning him and bringing shame upon him. They're hailing him to mock him. Verse 19, the fourth thing, again and again they struck him on the head with a staff. In Matthew's um, book of Matthew, when he describes this, he says, he says they first put the staff into his hand and they strip it out of him and they start to hit him with it. This is a wooden staff, solid wooden staff, like a scepter. And you see a scepter is given and as, as a sign of sovereignty, as a sign of Um, authority and they give it to Jesus and they rip it out of his hand and they beat him with it over his head again and again and again and then Mark says they spat on him subjects of a king are normally kissed on the hand as a sign of bowing down and respecting the king. Rather than kissing him on the hand, they spit at him. Again, the whole thing of this is a design to humiliate Jesus and to bring shame upon him. And the last one that the soldiers do that Mark records for us, again in verse 19, it says, falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And again, kings, people bow before kings as a sign of submission to them. But this isn't some mark of submitting to Jesus. This is all about mockery and scorning and shame. And can you see here what the Roman soldiers are doing deliberately is they're trying to show that they are in charge and this guy, Jesus, who says he's the Messiah, they're trying to say, hey, you're not not a king. We're in charge around here. And each of these actions is designed to strip Jesus of his glory and of his honor. He's being humiliated publicly. But what is going on here beneath the surface isn't just something physical. There is something far deeper going on here. In this moment of Jesus being shamed publicly, of being humiliated, what he's actually doing is he's actually absorbing and taking on himself all the shame and all the guilt that we carry. 
He is standing in the place that we should have been standing because of our wrongdoing and our rebellion and our sin and our shame. He says, I'm standing in that place and I'm taking this beating, I'm taking this humiliation on your behalf. I'm absorbing the shame that each of you carry. Now, if you stop for a moment and you thought, what's the most shameful thing I've ever done in my life? And you sat there and you thought about it. If you're in Christ this morning, Jesus has absorbed your shame. He's absorbed it on himself. In this moment, what is happening is he is absorbing and taking on himself the shame that you carry, the shame that I carry, the shame that the things that I have done wrong, that I deserve punishment. He says, I am taking that upon myself in this moment. There's a great quote I came across that says this, he wore the crown of thorns which we deserved that we might wear the crown of glory that he merited. He wore the crown of thorns which we deserved that we might wear the crown of glory which he merited. And when we read this passage, we need to understand that Jesus is taking and absorbing on himself our shame and our sin and our guilt and our wrongdoing. But the amazing thing also that's happening in this moment, in God's upside-down kingdom, something else is happening as Jesus is taking our shame. The cross is designed to bring shame and to humiliate Jesus. And in Jesus' greatest hour of shame, as he's pouring out his blood, as his body is broken for us, as he's being shamed and humiliated publicly, he's actually demonstrating his kingship and he's disarming the rulers and authorities. And he's bringing life into us. Something upside down happened. In in his greatest moment of shame is actually his moment of demonstrating his kingship. Because he's disarming the rulers and authorities. And he's showing himself to be the true king. Who stands in the place that no one else could have. Let's just look at a couple of scriptures together. Philippians 2 says, Jesus humbled himself to death. Even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him far above every other name. You see, in his shame, in the shame of the cross, he's actually being exalted and he's being lifted up and he's being shown to be the true king. Colossians 2 says he cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against it. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. Or he brought them to open shame, is another translation, triumphing over them at the cross. Do you see, the cross is actually, it's a moment of triumph, despite being a moment of shame. That's what's happening here, that Jesus is absorbing our shame, but in doing so, he's actually being exalted and shown to be the true king that he is. Hebrews 12 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, or regarding it with contempt, and he sat down at the right hand of God. We need to understand that even in his greatest hour of shame, he's still the king. And he's demonstrating his kingship. And he's showing that he's the anointed one. And it's something upside down in the kingdom of God that's happened. Satan thinks he has the victory, but in this moment when Jesus is crucified and when he was resurrected, he's actually making a public spectacle of the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And it's utterly upside down. The Roman soldiers think they've got him here. They think, we've shamed him. We've humiliated him. We've shown him that he's not the real king. They don't have a clue what's going on right now because he's actually being exalted. And three days later, when he rises from the dead, he proves it to them. And he shows and he demonstrates his utter kingship. 
And we need to understand that as we read this passage, as we look through this imagery, and we see the pictures that are being presented to us, we're drawing them out because we're understanding what the Roman soldiers are trying to do in bringing shame. We need to understand that Jesus is absorbing it and he's demonstrating his kingship. Both are happening at the same time. But to really understand shame, to help us understand the significance of it, we need to consider what shame is, where it comes from, and what the solution to it is. And a couple of weeks ago, Rob brilliantly bought um, um, a passage from Genesis, which we're just going to turn to, we're going to spend a bit of time looking at, because it actually helps us understand the origins of shame, and it understands how, in that moment, God does something which is a picture of what is perfected through Jesus Christ in this moment on the cross. So we're just going to read um, Genesis chapter 2. If you want to turn to it again, it will come up on the screen. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 to 25. The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. We're here at the dawn of creation. This beautiful moment, which is marked completely by innocence and honor. Because they're naked and they feel no shame, because they're, because they're innocent. Because they're like this with God. And it's a beautiful moment that doesn't last for very long. They had nothing to hide. And because they had nothing to hide, it didn't matter that they were naked. Their lives were marked, Adam and Eve, by innocence and honor. But we see, don't we, in Genesis chapter 3, things disintegrate literally in a moment. This innocence and honor gives way to guilt and shame. Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Do you know, I was actually going to try and sew some fig leaves together, but I didn't get time, and it would have just been a bit embarrassing. <laughs> Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? We see innocence and honor disintegrate in a moment. And innocence gives way to guilt, and honor gives way to shame. And to signify the shame that they felt physically, spiritually, sorry, they need to cover themselves up physically, because suddenly shame is a reality of the lives that they live, because of this break in their relationship to their creator. Do you know what's fascinating? No one told them that they were naked. When you read Genesis 3, they actually realized they were naked. There's a self-realization because when there's a break in the relationship to God that's marked by honor, suddenly shame comes in. They realize their shame before God. And then in verse 11, God says, who told you that you were naked? 
Actually, there's a self-realisation self that something has gone wrong, that our lives that were full of honour and we were innocent, now suddenly, because we did something that we knew was against the commands of God, we know there's been a brokenness. And actually, therefore, we feel shame and we feel guilt because of it, because there's a break in their relationship to their creator. This is the origin of shame. And the reality is, ever since that moment, lives have been marked by guilt and shame. Each of us, myself included. But what actually is shame? It's that deep and painful emotion that arises from something dishonorable that either we do or is done to us. It's that feeling of unworthiness or dirtiness that we feel that we can't shake off. And it's quite a deep emotion. It's quite a painful emotion. It's quite a life-controlling emotion. And it really comes from two ways. There's two ways that shame works its way out amongst God's people. I think the first is this. Shame comes when we break the commandments of God, when we sin. We know it says in the Bible, do not get angry. So if we get angry either once or repeatedly, we may start to feel unworthy or dirty or like a failure. That's shame. Or we know the Bible says, do not look at someone else with lust in your eyes. So if we do that, and we do that, and we do it repeatedly, we get this feeling of, God can't love me. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. It's like a dirtiness feeling. It's like an unworthy feeling that you feel right inside of you. That's what shame is. That's shame working its way out in your life. But do you know what? It's right that we do feel broken over our sin. We shouldn't, we shouldn't go, hey, our sinned. It doesn't matter. It's right that sin causes us to feel broken and there's a sense of something that is wrong. But the problem with shame, shame causes us to look within ourselves at our own actions and we feel unworthy, like I can't therefore come before God this morning because you don't know what I did last night or you don't know how angry I got before I came to church this morning. So I'm unworthy in the presence of God and therefore what happens is you back away and you draw away and you try to hide. But feeling broken over your sin but understanding that Jesus has already paid it and he's already absorbed your shame causes you to run into his arms, into his grace, into his mercy. And that's the difference because shame causes you to withdraw and it causes you to look within yourself. Understanding the grace of God causes you to run to him and run into the loving arms of a father who's there waiting saying, welcome home, my son. Welcome home, my daughter. And that's the difference between shame and grace. Shame causes us to run away. Grace causes us to run in to the person of Jesus Christ and run into his mercy and run into his arms. I think a great way biblically that you see shame working out is Peter when he denies Jesus. He, he's a guy who's like, hey, Jesus, I'm never going to leave you. If all, else, if all other people run away from you, I'll be the one who's standing there. And Jesus says, Peter, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. I pray that your faith may not fail. Three times the rooster crows, and that third time, it says Peter wept. I think what Peter is feeling in that moment is shame. He feels unworthy. He feels dirty. He feels not good enough. And it causes him to hide in Jesus' crucifixion. He's actually, he runs away. I think, I think he feels shame in there. Let me just give you an example from our own life. Um, I, I, as a person, I have a very high value on integrity and honesty, and about 10 years ago at work, I tried to, I, I hope this doesn't get, it will go online, but someone knows about it. I tried to cover up something that I know I'd done wrong. It's about 10 years ago. 
And honestly, 10 years later, I still feel quite shameful about it. I know Jesus had paid the price for it because I'm like, man, I know that I failed to live a life that I knew I was called to live. I just did something. I was like, I made a mistake and I, I tried to somehow come across and say, hey, it'll be all right. I was a Christian at the time. I know God's forgiven me, don't worry. But actually, when I, when I look back up at it, I still like, ah, oh, I can't believe it. That's what shame does. It causes us to back away and to go, ah, oh, I somehow feel unworthy as a result of it. That's just a small example of how it's worked out in my life. So the first one is shame comes when we break the commandments of God. But shame can also come related to our circumstances. You might feel shame, but it might be nothing to do with sin or wrongdoing. Let me just give you a few examples. You might feel ashamed that you've got no money or that you're in debt. You might feel ashamed of the job you've got. You might be ashamed of your family. You might be ashamed of the house you live in. You might be ashamed of your appearance. You might be ashamed that you have depression. You might be ashamed that you're ill. You might be ashamed that you were abused or you have been abused in life. In all those circumstances, you may have done nothing wrong against the commandments of God, but you might feel a very, very deep shame, or you feel ashamed is probably a better description. That's how you feel. I'm ashamed. None of these themselves are shameful. It's not shameful to have very little money. It's not shameful to live in a small house. It's not shameful to live with depression. But we can feel ashamed, like we're unworthy, like we're not good enough, like we don't match up to one another or society's expectations. You see, shame from having no money often becomes because society goes, if you have money, you'll be happy. So if you don't have money, you somehow feel ashamed, like you're not good enough. And do you know what? It can be incredibly painful if you live with that kind of shame. Incredibly painful. And just the same as I talked about, God wants to set you free. God wants to set you free from this kind of shame as well. If you're living with feeling ashamed of your circumstances for whatever reason, God wants to help you understand that he sees you and that he loves you and he knows you. And the reality is, whatever the cause of shame is for you, there'll be most of us in the room for who, for some degree, be it minor or more life-controlling, where we feel shame. And so a solution is needed. And I don't know about you, but I've tried to work out my own shame. I've tried desperately to say, hey, if I can just do something, maybe I won't feel shame anymore. But it just doesn't work. It's utterly futile. We need something from outside of ourselves to cover our shame and our nakedness. Which brings us right back to the passage in Genesis, which is a picture of what Jesus is perfecting in Mark chapter 15, as he takes on our shame. In Genesis 3, we see the human approach to dealing with shame. So the human approach in Genesis chapter 3, the first one is they try to dress themselves. They try to cover up themselves. That's the first actions the humans took, Adam and Eve, when shame entered. They tried to cover their nakedness with these clumsy fig leaves. Last year, um, Sarah came to pick me up from work um, with the kids, and um, so basically we've got Ella, who's six, and Jed, who's four now. They came to pick me up in the summer, but um, she didn't bring anything with her, and Jed had an accident, and so he had no shorts, and he had no pants, and there were no spares with her. So we clumsily thought, if we, put, if we take his T-shirt, we take his T-shirt off and wrap it around him, then maybe that'll do the job. But very quickly, we realized that just did not cover him very well at all. He thought it was absolutely hilarious, but the reality was, our clumsy attempts at trying to cover up our son just did not work. 
It was very, very clumsy. He thought it was very funny, but it just didn't cover the essentials. Luckily, he's three and he doesn't really worry about these sort of things. In fact, he thinks it's absolutely amazing. But the reality is we too, we too in our own way, can, can try to cover ourselves, can't we? If I can just stop getting angry, if I can just stop looking at that person with lust, if I can just manage my, my finances or my home better, then maybe I won't feel shame. We can try and cover it up ourselves and just brush over it. It doesn't really matter. It's fine. And the second thing that the humans try to do is hide. Have you ever thought about the ridiculousness of this? This is like the first game of hide-and-seek that was ever invented, but possibly the worst, trying to hide from an ever-present God behind a bush, like as if, can't see me. The reality is they're trying to hide from God as if, as if somehow they, they, you know, they, they, they must have known they couldn't hide from God. But they sort of try to hide away, try to run away, try to hide away from him. And we can try to hide. We can try to hide behind our careers or behind our money or behind our circumstances and say, hey, everything's okay, thanks. Often we try and hide from one another, which we'll talk about just before we close. So our solution can often be to cover ourselves or try to hide. God's solution, which is pictured in Genesis 3 and perfected through Jesus Christ, is this. You cannot deal with your own shame. You need a righteousness that is outside of yourself. You need something that you cannot muster up in your own strength. And you see, in Genesis, God looks at their clumsy attempts to cover themselves with fig leaves. And he does this in verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. He looks at their clumsy attempts, and he graciously makes the first blood sacrifice. And he covers them perfectly through the blood of an animal. And that picture is now being perfected in Mark 15 through Jesus Christ. You see, the Genesis story and the whole of the Old Testament is pointing forward. And it all points forward to what we've looked at in Mark 15, the moment when Jesus will truly carry our shame and absorb it on himself. And no longer will we need garments of skin to cover ourselves because he's dealt with the issue of shame inside of ourselves. There is only one way to break the power of shame, guys, and it's not found within ourselves. You can try, maybe you have tried. It's only possible through the power of the cross because Jesus Christ absorbed our shame and triumphed over the shame of the cross. You can't do it. You can't remove your own shame. But because he paid the price, he's taken it on himself. Guys, can I just invite you just to come back up just as we land? We're going to go back into a time of worship and taking of communion together. I just want to land with this. Because of your sin, each of us, you are naked before God. Yet he's clothed you in righteousness. You are known yet fully delighted in.